Welcome to Fintech Daydreaming, the podcast that dives into the world of banking technologies and the ever-changing landscape of fintech companies. We bring you real-life examples from global and local thought leaders, as well as experts working within the financial industry, and seek out the best stories from the front lines of financial services innovation, where dreams of industry pioneers meet reality. Hosted by Paul Krogdahl and Ville Sontu, this is Fintech Daydreaming. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Fintech Daydreaming. Today is very special because we are recording live in front of a virtual, but very much live audience. The last time we did a live episode uh, was actually roughly about a year ago uh, in this same very event that we are doing this today, which is the Nordea Insights Day. It's of course an epic experience to be back again. Uh, I guess we didn't do too bad of a job last year uh, because we were invited back. Uh, my name is Ville Sointu, uh, and I will be your host for this episode. Uh, but I am, of course, joined by my good friend and co-founder of this podcast, Paul Krugdahl. Good to be back doing a live episode, don't you think, Paul? I agree completely. I think it's a fantastic experience. I think we need to do more of these uh, live episodes, Villa. Yeah, I think uh, we actually need to do a real live episode as soon as this uh, kind of pandemic situation is over in front of a real live audience. I think that would be actually quite interesting uh, in order to get some interaction going on as well. But of course, we need to kick off the podcast in a, in a usual way. So do we have a listener joke? Yes, we do. I'm, I'm wondering, Villa, uh, do you know why the analyst threw all his savings in the river? I'm assuming it's cash, but no, I don't know. Uh, he was analyzing his cash flow. Okay, that's that's like a worth a slow clap, maybe. So uh, <laughs> I can imagine the audience is doing the exact same uh, reaction on that. So thank you. Uh, our listeners, listener jokes are a bit of a signature of our podcast, and we we definitely enjoy all of them, uh, for better or worse, uh, and keep them coming. We love them all. Now, uh, I should let listeners know that we're going to do a bit of a condensed episode today uh, because of the constraints of this live environment. So I'm going to have to move us directly to our topic of today uh, and, of course, our dear guest. Today we will be talking about the currently white-hot topic of embedded finance and platformication of banking. To tell us all about it, we're excited to have Paolo Cironi uh, as our guest for this special live episode. Paolo is IBM's global research lead for financial services, and along his day job of working with leading financial institutions of the world, Paolo is an elected member of IBM's Industry Academy and has authored several well-known books uh, on financial technology and innovation. Paolo is also the co-host of Breaking Banks Europe, which is, of course, one of the world's most popular fintech podcasts. And I also heard some unverified rumors that they might have a one or two listeners more uh, than our podcast. But again, let's let's leave it at that. Uh, I think it's it's fine. But welcome to the show, uh, Paolo. How are you doing today? Paolo seems to be frozen, but. Are we having technology problems? Yes, we are. <laughs> of course, this is like the real live ex uh, episode experience where we're actually, of course, going to have uh, some connectivity problems uh, in here. Yes. But let's keep the uh, let's keep the show going. Uh, I think while we wait for Paolo to join again, uh, have, what, are your, what is your, your thinking around uh, banking platforms and uh, embedded finance uh, to kind of set the scene for Paolo uh, to come in, Paul. 
Well, as you know, Villa, I, I have a fairly strong point of view that the future of banking will be dominated by platforms going forwards. It doesn't necessarily mean that every single bank will become a, a platform business, but I think every bank will have to make a decision as to how they're going to interact and operate in the future in a predominantly platform economy. This will either mean that they, uh, they will uh, deliver you know, white-labeled banking services uh, that get embedded into uh, third-party platforms, or maybe even going as far as uh, delivering, you know, banking as a service where they can allow third parties to piggyback on the bank's banking license to deliver end-to-end -end banking capabilities rather than just small banking uh, point solutions as, you know, the, the journey of open banking has been going on. Or I believe that certain banks will be looking at, uh, you know, building complete ecosystem platforms by themselves where they can continue to uh, to dominate the uh, the financial capabilities of the the members that are interacting on the platform. Yeah. I believe that Paolo is is along the sort of same lines and has written several books on this subject. With a book coming out, I believe in October this year. But hopefully, he will join us again quite soon and be able to, uh, to give us some insights. Oh, if you hear me, I'm back. Yes, I can. Perfect. I can because the line is a bit unstable and. Uh, I need to warn the audience uh, that there is a virus spreading in the Nordics. It's British humor, hearing from the joke you had at the very beginning. <laughs> <laughs> there we go, there we go. Good to have you back, us, back with us, Paolo. I think this is kind of a true evidence that this is a live episode because we're having technical problems. But uh, yeah, this is uh, <laughs> actually pretty cool. So, Paolo, uh, now that we have you back online, uh, I was about to ask you, how are you? Uh, so let's start with that. How are you, Paolo? I'm fine, thanks. Uh. Great, and really great to have you with us. And now that we have you with us, let's get to the topic of uh, hearing your, uh, your views into this uh, into this topic of embedded finance and platformication in general. Now, uh, in modern service creation and development, there's always this mantra of uh, putting the customer first, uh, focus on the why. Uh, but in your book, Paolo, uh, The Financial Market Transparency, you introduce the concept of the rational economic actor, so what you call homo economicus, and how this contrasts to the real world, i.e. us homo sapiens, who are actually feeling and uh, emotional uh, kind of people. So can you tell us a little bit more about uh, this kind of uh, thinking uh, in your book? Well, let's put it this way. If you want to build a nuclear plant of a quantum computer, you need a good theory. Now, economics is not really a science, but it needs a good theory. And in 2009, Alan Grispan realized that uh, the theory was floated when he was invited by the US Congress to say why the financial crisis was erupting and the system was collapsing. He said, we found the flow in the model and we are concerned with the fact that we don't know what to do with that. Now, the flow was the fact that uh, prevailing uh, economic theory was focusing on the idea of rational agents, rational institutions, rational banks and regulators, while in reality, I wouldn't say that the world is irrational, but rationality is not as we expect it to be. And there's one reason for that, which is the fact that uh, most of our decisions uh, are shaped by our incapability or difficulty to deal with uncertainty. And that is a very, very important element, and you will see why, because uh, it is a part of the story between closed systems, closed banking, open systems, and open banking. Now, 10 years after, in 2019, 
the Econ Committee was asked by the European Parliament to write a paper to address the change of guard at the European Central Bank when Ms. Lagarde took office. And the Econ Committee said that going forward, Europe, the Central Bank, not just the European Central Bank, will have to navigate in the dark and therefore resolve three types of issues that are very concerning. The first one, of course, is the problem of negative interest rates. The Mero Draghi said they will remain. The second is the imperfect capital market union, which is more about the European Union. But the third, which is very important, they said we now know that we do live in a world of fundamental uncertainty. And fundamental uncertainty to be dealt with requires different methods and different measures. Now, what is the problem here? The problem is that financial markets can collapse facing uncertainty. The economy can collapse facing uncertainty. Now, markets, financial markets and economies are platforms, so platforms can collapse, facing uncertainty. Now, where do you find the link here? Well, you think about Netflix. You know that Netflix implemented what is called chaos engineering, and so Starling Bank did the same. So basically, they created Chaos Monkey, where they force the system to face uncertainty, like servers failing, because they want to test live with what if, that the system can survive. So now the financial market transparency, which I also presented in uh, the European Central Bank press room in 2019 and had the chance to share with Ms. Lagarde a few months before when she was still at the international uh, the IMF, um, is about uh, dealing with the problem of uncertainty in economic and financial decision making. And transparency is the element that unveils the gap between Homo economicus and Homo sapiens. So reminding that Homo sapiens needs to survive facing uncertainty. So you cannot close the system, otherwise it will face collapse. And therefore, when you start from these new biological macro foundations, which are the way Homo sapiens deal with uncertainty, you then create a new theory, which is positive, that enables you to understand how you can shape the business model of the bank to create really sustainable value for humanity on a planet of finite resources. And you understand the shift between closed banking, closed architectures, and open banking and open architectures, because you need to stay adaptive and nimble facing uncertain market conditions. So prepare for openness, transparency, and uh, to a certain extent, uncertainty uh, of decisions and, and people doing making those decisions. But uh, I mean, I, that implies that we're, you're, gonna, you're gonna still have going to have a kind of a digital but personal relationship uh, with well, in banking uh, quite a bit. Now, do you think that digital can ever be fully personal uh, in the same way as it used to be when people actually went to the branch offices and had phone calls uh, with, with customer representatives? It's a good question. Now, digital has value, but we need to understand where it has value. And Silicon Valley misunderstood that for the last 10 years. And you can clearly see today in the market 10 years after we started uh, the fintech revolution. Now, what Silicon Valley did not understand uh, is that digital is a technology of the demand, what I call pull, because you pull, while most of the banking revenues that matter going forward operate in an offer-driven economy is a push-driven business. I give you an example with grocery. Grocery is a pull mechanism. Amazon is a pull mechanism. Because uh, when I go to the supermarket every Saturday and my wife wants me to do the grocery and happy to do that, I pull from the shelf my Italian pasta, my milk, my soya beans, and then I see an advertisement of George Clooney shampooing his beard with a new shampoo. And I see, Villa, you have a beard too, and so pal, and I'm sure that you bought the same shampoo because your beard is shining. Now, this pushed to me by Procter & Gamble. But when I get to the cashier, 
95% of the things I buy are always the same, the same skimmed milk, the same strawberry yogurt, because I'm very self-directed, right? There's a lot of money spent in advertisement to change my habits. And when you do that, you win because grocery is a hooking mechanism. However, very few people Google when they have to make an investment decision for the long term or the pension plan, and they tend to talk to a person. That is investment management or insurance, right? So that's where we start seeing the problem because we need to find a way to push an offer-driven economy onto a pool-driven technology. Now, you can see that clearly when you look at the different tech ecosystem. If you think about a bank, a banking group like Nordea, you have payment, credit, investment products, and insurance. Now, payment and credit are very pool-oriented. They are demand-driven because you buy something so you know the value. You get the money for the mortgage, you buy the house, right? There might be some complexities when you have your optionalities inside, but typically it's more self-directed. While investment management in insurance is not, if you have to buy a life insurance, you need to think about your death. So it's difficult for me to do that on digital, right? So it's easier in a personal conversation. Now, how do you put a, a, pull, a, a push uh, economy onto pull technology? Well, you have two ways of doing that, uh, using artificial intelligence. The first one is to use AI to push more, which uh, I would not advise for two reasons. Uh, the first one is that it doesn't really comply with the shift between output and outcome economies that we might want to discuss uh, as it is relevant. But also, AI is not yet general. It's not deeply and truly conversational. It can do many things, but cannot go to that extent that you might expect to replace the human conversation fully. But AI is very relevant if you wanted to enable the client to be capable of pulling. So what people misunderstood is that it is not enough to have a good customer experience if you don't help people with data, with AI, with better information, even plugging in the human relationship, whatever is needed, to make decisions so that they don't just consume symmetrical products like payments whose margins are going down, but they can also consume more asymmetrical product by making them symmetrical so that understandable transparently, which is investment management and insurance. Great. And now that we introduced a kind of AI element into this digital person, personal relationship between, between banks and their customers, then kind of Taking a little bit of a, a leap to the future, I mean, in the, fu in the future, we might see AI machines and robots on the other side of that customer relationship. So how does that thinking work there? What if there's an AI uh, also on the other side and it, it basically becomes a, you should call them rational thinkers uh, as opposed to homo sapiens? Well, that is another problem, Ville. Let me jump into that. Uh, AI is uh, a mathematical optimization engine one way or the other. And also AI has to face uncertainty. Forgetting that AI has to face uncertainty forces AI to collapse in the end as well. And you don't want your complex system to collapse. That's why many people in the research centers are trying to figure out how to make uncertainty endogenous into the algorithm because the big data does not contain the future, not in investment management, nor in different decision making. And that is also the reason why we always advocate for AI to be an assistant to human decisions when it comes to complex element. Now, there's a lot of uh, thinking around uh, how you can envelop AI to make sure that it does good instead of doing bad. Luciano Floridi, for example, of uh, Oxford is writing and discussing a lot about that. I believe that uh, 
the financial market transparency theory principles, uh, which are a way of addressing an institutional approach, therefore a regulatory framework, not only around uh, financial services, but also around the usage of technology is the needed envelope, but they make sure that the usage of AI remains open facing uncertainty in a way that it adds values, but it avoids the collapse. Now, how do you define collapse? Just think about the bias, for example, right? So in the usage of the algorithm, that is a way of collapsing the algorithm because you will not be able to use it anymore. It generates negative natural effects. So then, it is absolutely important to understand that the value it is not in the algorithm itself. The value is in data architecture and in the architecture that precedes the algorithm to make sure that the utilization of technology is transparent, robust, and explicable. Of course, it's a bit expensive, but that is how you build sustaining innovation, not just disruption that fires back the moment the algorithm collapses, and you don't know what to do with it. So, we need also for the usage of AI a good theory grounded on transparency principles to make sure that we do extract the value from technology that we need, not just the romantic side of the exponential technology piece. Yeah, I think one of the things I always remind myself about is that whenever people talk about AI, they actually talk about stuff that's uh, in the horizon. Right? So AI is always in the horizon. You never reach AI in a sense. So what you're also saying there makes a lot of sense. Now, we are on a live episode, and since I lost the video stream to Paul, uh, I'm going to ask Paul, are you there? I am here indeed, yes. Can you hear me? Okay. Cool, very good, just checking. Uh, so, Paul, you write and talk a lot about banking platforms and composable relationships uh, in the same kind of theme as Paolo is talking about here. Now, sounds like you will probably agree to a lot uh, what's, what we've been talking about here. Oh, absolutely, Villa. And, and as you know, and as I said a little while ago, I do have a strong point of view that the future of banking will be dominated by platforms going forwards. And it will, at the end of the day, as I said, be up to each actor in the uh, the banking industry, uh, such as Nodia, really, to, to decide how they want to engage in a future platform economy. I do not think, though, as I said, it will be mandatory for every bank to become a platform provider uh, in totality, but we will see a spectrum of players in this space with many banks taking new positions in uh, in, an, in the sort of platform economy and and we will see new business architectures emerging to be able to support this going forwards. I think one of the critical elements in this transition is the shift from banking products to uh, client centricity as Paolo sort of alluded to and uh, you know focused on client experiences predominantly. There are some often discussed by Paolo is, is the shift of, from, um, I think Paolo calls it output to outcome economies. He talked about that a little while ago and how banks need to understand the uh, foundational nature of digital technologies, as he also spoke about, you know, this demand driven in contrast to, um, you know, push driven. But, but all of this is a foundational shift for traditional banks such as Nodea. And, and based on, on your research, Paolo, I, I'm wondering what do you see as uh, critical success factors for a bank like Nodea to drive success in this shift going forwards? Um, so, Paolo, let's say it this way. Um, LinkedIn is the platform for my business life. Facebook is the platform for my uh, personal life. Uh, Twitter used to be the platform for my Trump paranoia. 
But uh, the question is, where is the platform for my financial life? Uh, now, you see, platforms are the winning uh, entities uh, on the digital economy. So banks also need to understand how to become platforms uh, in order to survive and compete. But there might be different type of platform strategies and understanding those is foundational, especially at the intersection between the Eastern world uh, and the Western world. Uh, they might be dominated at the very beginning by different uh, approaches that will converge in the end. Now, to understand uh, what a good platform strategy is, uh, we need to make sure that this platform strategy, first of all, complies with the existing shift from output economies to outcome economies, because missing that, uh, this allows uh, the value generated by digital. Output is um, a linear business, while outcome is not linear per se, because it's the multi-sided contribution of uh, elements that enable somebody to do something. I explained to you this way, thinking about BMW, for example. Now, in the output economy, BMW wants to sell uh, 1 million Series 7 in 2022. So, Paul, drop your Porsche, the new Series 7 is coming. But in the outcome economy, BMW doesn't want you to drive your Porsche to go to the IBM office in the morning. It wants to mobilize 1 million people living in Helsinki to do commuting. It's very different, it's car sharing. So the economics are different. The way people pay for that experience is very different. They don't necessarily need the asset, they need basically to be facilitated in their journey. Now, what about a bank like Nordea? Nordea would operate in the output economy that is based on margins through products that are effectively going squeezed out by deciding that uh, in 2022, Nordea wants to sell 1 billion euros of uh, a monetary fund. Now, Nordea operating in the outcome economy instead means Nordea has uh, as a scope uh, to facilitate its clients, uh, like uh, families uh, or entrepreneurs, to achieve their personal, their business or their financial goals. It is very different because clients will have to pay for those interactions, value generating interactions in different ways because it's about services. Now, financial services confused the service with the product for a long time. And, and that's part of the homo economicus, homo sapiens element. So the asymmetry of information that shapes uh, the generation of revenues is rooted in the biology of the individuals. We don't have time today to discuss that, but a good thing is that I've got books out there that everybody can read so that they can deep dive into the concept. Now, what does it mean to shift from output to outcome economies when it comes to banking infrastructure and and platform strategies. Well, I like to blame again the European Central Bank. Uh, the research unit of the ECB published a very interesting paper in uh, July 2020 that uh, is called the financial intermediation with technology, what's old and what's new. Basically, they say that uh, banks exert market power when they excel in information and communication. And you see why this is linked to output and outcome. Now, information is core banking, uh, is payments, is the adversarial action and you need to find that the best client to give credit for a good rate or you need to understand that the bad client or the complex client to give credit for the right price. Now we know that that part of information of core banking is highly expensive today and it doesn't generate sufficient return on equity after the price for risk to reward the shareholders, which is the problem of banks, especially in Europe with low to negative interest rates. Communication instead is about interfaces where many fintechs started positioning like 
just think the user experience, which is very restrictive, is not at the end of the game, but you can think about that way. Now, there's less investment there because you need to still run the bank, but that is where most of the revenues are coming, especially as you see banks positioning more into those type of revenues that come from those type of services. Now, just think about UBS. UBS is the largest uh, Swiss bank, but Futsal Russell, July last year, took UBS out of the banking index because they said it's not a bank anymore, it's an asset manager, because most of the revenue don't come from information, they come from communication. Right, the investment piece. Now, that piece is transforming itself from product-driven commissions, outputs, into fees applied on clients that they need to access basically a solution which is around their financial wellness. Now, what I did in my last book, which will be released in October this year on, on, on the Wiley platform, is the banks and fintech on platform economies, contextual banking is conscious banking, is to create a banking innovation quadrant made of two axes, information quotient and communication quotient. And here I'm explaining that by sliding on these axes, increasing the intensity of the information quotient, you can box out from the corner where the core banking now is uh, positioned and find new ways to generate value of information with open data architecture, open finance, open ecosystems by contextualizing those pieces inside adjacent ecosystems. So basically interacting of building non-banking platforms. A good example from the IBM portfolio of clients SBI IONO, State Bank of India. Uh, today, there is also the Detainee Virtual Forum of IBM, our client will talk there. So I invite you after this talk to join because you will hear how you can slide on information to generate value in the platform economy. On the other side, you can slide on communication. Therefore, you can start plugging AI at scale, mixing with human interactions to resolve the issues of homo sapiens dealing with canning financial decisions through a digital medium, where digital is there to enable you to understand the value of the old proposition beyond what the human being can do in a personal conversation, because that's expensive, it takes time. It is needed, but digital is there to support it by using AI to help people build a visible relationship with a banking element. That's why contextual is invisible banking, while conscious banking, which is at the end of the communication intensity journey, is uh, a visible banking because you're conscious, you're dealing with a financial relationship and you're making a decision around that. So you see out of the shift that I recommend the Nordea to clearly investigate uh, between information towards open ecosystem, hybrid cloud platforms and communication towards the usage of AI to make sure the clients are enabled through data to make financial decisions instead of being pushed with that understanding, I do believe that you can define your journey towards conscious banking and contextual banking. To conclude, you now see more conscious banking examples in Asia, where you have uh, the shift towards information because less regulation, the financial inclusion opportunities and so forth. You see the shift towards conscious banking more in Europe and in the Western world, UBS, for example, Morgan Stanley, just to drop names, right? I'm not just advocating for, you know, or endorsing one bank to the other, but you can think what Goldman Sachs is trying to do. Goldman Sachs tries to build contextual banking and conscious banking at the same time on digital in three years, right? Very, very ambitious. And, and that is the way I believe that uh, you can understand uh, with technology, with exponential technologies and new business models, uh, how to shift from output economies towards outcome economies uh, and remain relevant, actually compete as a winner in the digital economy. Wow. Uh, 
I hope you were taking notes because I mean we could go on forever uh, with these insights, uh, but unfortunately it's a live episode and we, we are out of time. I so much would have liked to continue here, but uh, we absolutely have to stop But for this time. But uh, in case you had questions from the live audience or otherwise, uh, I promise you we will take those questions offline and we will cover them in the future episodes of this podcast. This is also a way for you to subscribe to the podcast. Now, uh, Paolo, uh, let, please let the audience know, how can they be in touch with you in case they want to have more conversations about the things we talked about? Well, they can reach out directly. Um, they can connect on LinkedIn, where I have a lot of uh, public conversations, so Paolo Cironi there. They can check my profile and work on my personal website, thepcironi.com, like the Financial Times. And if they want to see also my work at IBM, they can check ibm.com slash IBV, the Institute for Business Value, where they find further research and conversations around the banking and financial markets. Great, great stuff. Uh, thank you to the live audience. Thank you to our listeners. You can reach us uh, at all of our social media channels and emails as always. And Paul and I will be back in two weeks time with a new guest. So see you all then. And this has been FinTech Daydreaming. <laughs>